Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So for those of you who aren't aware of it, there are 96 days until Christmas. <laughs> yeah, which means there's like 35 days until the Christmas decorations go up in stores. It used to be right after Thanksgiving. Now it starts like right after Halloween, okay? It just keeps coming faster and faster all of the time. I actually, I thought I was going to get a head start. This was going to be the first Christmas message of the season and the first mention of Christmas, and then actually yesterday I saw a commercial, a not Christmas commercial for Kmart. I don't know if any of you have seen this. Um, it's not a, they tell us up front, it's not a Christmas commercial, but if you happen to have an event coming up at the end of December in which you need to buy a lot of presents for people, Kmart now offers layaway, so you can do your birthday event shopping from Christmas for December starting now, okay? So I thought I was going to get a jump on everything. I'm already behind the stores, but we are at that place in the story. Uh, at the beginning of this year, we started a journey through the Bible all the way through, and we've been using that book, The Story, and I, I hope you've been continuing to read up. Everybody up on their reading? Less and less hands every week, okay? Keep at it, keep at it. Pick up wherever you left off. Just pick back it up. Um, but today we are at the birth of Christ. Um, and let me kind of bring you up to speed for those of you who haven't been here all along. Um, God began a work of redemption um, centuries ago. And he started with a man named Abraham and said of him, I will make of you a great nation. And his family did indeed become a nation. And God called them and made a covenant with them to say, I will be your God. You will be my people. And he gave them the law and he gave them the promise and he gave them a land that they could move into. And, and God's redeeming work began through the nation of Israel. They were called to be not just the people of God, but to be a blessing and a light to all the nations around them. But over the course of their history, through their rebellion, through their uh, idolatry, through their sin, though God sent them con con uh, continuous warnings over and over and over again, they continued to persist in their rebellion and, rebellion and idolatry. And God finally said, enough, time for a timeout. And so the Babylonians came in, destroyed Jerusalem, carted off all of these people to exile in Babylon. And for 70 years, the nation of Israel really was no more. But after 70 years, God, fulfilling his promise through King Cyrus of Persia, allowed for the exiles to return. And they returned to Jerusalem. The first thing they did was they rebuilt the temple. And then they rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. And they became a nation and a secure capital once again. And then for 400 years, nothing. From the last historic account in the Old Testament until the coming of Jesus Christ, there is 400 years of silence. There was no prophet in the land. There are no writings, no word from God. And, and as those 400 years progressed, this idea of a Messiah and this hope for Israel diminished more and more with each passing year. Some abandoned their faith completely. Others doubted and questioned and wondered, and a few held on to that hope and that promise. But for 400 years, everybody's wondering, what's God up to? What's going on? Has the story come to an end? And then, God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. 
And he became the fulfillment of all that God had been doing. And in Christ, he completed that redemptive work in human history. And so today we're going to do a Christmas message in September, sort of. Because we're not going to read Matthew's account or Luke's account. We're not going to talk about shepherds and wise men and stars and angels and Mary and Joseph and donkey rides to Bethlehem and all that kind of stuff. We're actually going to take a look at John's gospel. Because what John does, and here's the thing that we've seen as we've been going through the story. That there's actually the story unfolding on two levels. There is the God big story in which from the eternal perspective, God is working sovereignly, but he is doing it on the lower story through individuals and through families and through nations. And so there are two levels to this story. And in Matthew and Luke, they tell the human level side of the story. But John gives us the big picture. He kind of peels back and gives us the, the cosmic view of what God is doing. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And um, if you want to turn there, we're in John chapter 1. Um, if you have your copy of the story, the, the book that we've been uh, giving out, um, that's on page 309 at the bottom of the page. We're going to pick it up. John chapter 1, verse 14. John writes about Jesus coming and refers to him as the Word, the Word of God expressed to us. And he says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father. He has made him known. What John is saying is that now in human history, like never before, God has entered our world. Yes, we have had prophets. Yes, we've had priests. Yes, we've had God speaking. But now, like never before, God has entered our world. And he uses a very specific term that his Jewish readers would totally understand. Um, it's translated in our English that he made his dwelling among us. But literally what he says is he, he tabernacled among us. Now, if you remember when we were talking about the nation of Israel and their escape from their uh, slavery in Egypt before they entered the promised land for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And God gave them the design for, for a portable temple, a tabernacle. And that tabernacle was set up right in the middle of camp. And all the tribes tented around the tabernacle. It was central to their camp. And it was meant to be the, present, the, 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 the promise that God is in our midst. And in fact, God made himself known through a pillar of fire at night and through a cloud during the day. But it was a reminder. This tabernacle was saying God dwells among us. God lives among us. And John uses that imagery, that idea, and he says that's what he has now done in Jesus Christ. That like no way ever before, God has pitched his tent with us. He has moved into the neighborhood. He has taken up residence. He has lived among us. And so if you want to know what God is like, if you know, want to know what it means to relate to God and be a follower of God, look at Jesus. Follow him. He is God. Moved into our neighborhood. Like never before. And he uses two words to describe him. Grace and truth. 
And Jesus was the full embodiment of both, both grace and truth. Now, when we think of grace and truth, we think of them, they're like polar opposites. There's either truth or there's grace, but, but they, the two just, they don't really fit together. But John says, no, he was the perfect and full embodiment of both of those things, truth and grace. And they are not polar opposites. They are actually, in many ways, two sides of the very same coin. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Because what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus is grace and truth at every turn. And they are not polar opposites. They are actually two sides of the very same coin. In reality, truth is an expression of grace. John wrote it this way. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, we need truth. Because we don't know the truth. We can't handle the truth, as the movie saying goes, okay? Because the truth about you is, you don't know the truth about you. I don't know the truth about myself. I mean, think about it. You're at a birthday party. And the cake comes out, and it's got the candles on it, and everybody joins in singing happy birthday to you. But there is one person in the room that is singing totally off key. Now, let me ask you. Who is the one person in the room that does not know that somebody is singing totally off key? The one who's singing totally off key. You've got a group of friends, but one of them has this, this real annoying habit and gets on everybody's nerves. Now, who is the one person in your group of friends that has no idea that they had that annoying habit? The person who has the annoying habit. Why? Because we have blind spots. And, and here's going to come a shocker for you, maybe this morning. You have blind spots. <laughs> Everybody else around you knows what they are. In fact, they talk about it when you're not around. But the truth is, you have blind spots. You don't know the truth about you. So this morning, just so you get this all in and understand it completely, turn to the person next to you and just tell them, you, my friend, have blind spots. Okay? <laughs> Yeah, you don't have to tell them what they all are. You can save that for Sunday brunch, okay? But we all have them. Okay, they got the idea. We've all got them. We have these blind spots about ourselves that we don't realize, but everybody around us sees all the time. And then on top of that, on top of that, there are these things that we know about ourselves, but we try to keep hidden from other people, even keep hidden from ourselves. John Ortberg wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Me I Want to Be. And one of the things that he does in the very first chapter is he talks about all the counterfeit me's that every one of us has. Talks about them. The me I pretend to be. That's the public persona that I put up in front of everybody else that I want them to believe that I'm really better than I truly am. We've all got that counterfeit me. There's the me I think I should be. It's the one that lives with the guilt of not measuring up. Or the me that other people want me to be. That's what drives me to be a people pleaser. Always wanting other people to think well of me. There's the me I'm afraid God wants me to be. That is constantly frustrated because I can't live up to those unrealistic expectations. And then he talks about the me that fails to be. The one that is truly missing out 
on a deeply soul-satisfying life. And every one of us knows those counterfeit me's. See, that's the truth about me. And I need to know the truth about me. You need to know the truth about you. Because if we don't know the truth about ourselves, we'll never do anything about it. And what Jesus did is he spoke the truth at the deepest levels of who people were. You might remember in his Sermon on the Mount, he talked about things. He said things like, if you harbor bitterness and anger and resentment in your heart against somebody, that is the moral equivalent of murder. If you look at another with lust, it is as if you have committed adultery in your heart. He speaks to the very core of our being, our attitudes and, and our motivations. And he's revealing the truth. Now, he doesn't do that to set these impossible standards for us to live up to. He just wants us to come to grips with the real truth about you is this is who you are where nobody else sees you. Because you need to know the truth about you. He has a man come to him. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a morally upright man. He is a teacher of the law. He is big on the truth. And he has lived his life as best as he can, living up to those standards. And yet he has this sense that something is missing. So he comes to Jesus at night and he says, what must I do to be a part of the kingdom of God? And to this morally upright, fine, upstanding teacher of the law that everybody would look on and say, if anybody has it, it's him. Jesus said, every bit of your righteousness is totally worthless. You need a brand new start. He said, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Oh, you're doing a good job. But the kingdom of God is about the inner you. You need a brand new start. You got to start all over again. And then just turn over a few pages in John's gospel. And he encounters a Samaritan woman at the well. And, and the Samaritans were the outcasts. They, the Jews did not like the Samaritans for a lot of different reasons that we can't go into right now. But not only is she part of an outcast group, she is also an outcast in her own community. She is there drawing water from the well at the middle of the heat of the day. Now, that is not when people draw water. Everybody else did it in the morning, in the cool of the day. But she doesn't even get to socialize with the rest of her community. And she's there at the well, and Jesus speaks to her. And you know who he first, he is the, she is the very first person that Jesus reveals the fact that he is the Messiah. She's the first person he tells that to. And then he offers to her a, 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 a living water that will quench the deepest resources of your soul. And he says to her, now, go get your husband. And she says in her cover-up kind of not-the-truth-about-me way, I don't have a husband. And he says, that's very true. Fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you're living with right now, you're not even married to him. That's kind of tough. That's kind of cruel. Why is Jesus doing that? You know why? Because he wants her to know that it's not the pretend you that I'm offering this living water to. It's the real you. I know the real you. And it's the real you that I'm offering this living water. And it will quench 
the deepest resources of your soul, that all of those broken relationships and broken marriages and however you ended up where you are, you were never satisfied with. It's the real you. See, Jesus tells the truth not to shame and not to condemn, but so that we would realize that at the deepest level, that's who he offers this new life to. And so the truth is really an expression of God's grace. And, and the woman, she, she, she is so shaken by this, she actually goes back into the village and she starts telling everybody about this Messiah that she has met. And, and, and it says that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. But listen to her testimony. This is her testimony. He told me everything I ever did. He told the truth about me. He didn't shame her, condemn her. It brought her a new life. Now let me ask you. If you were going to buy a used car and you brought it to the mechanic because you wanted it to have, have it checked out. You brought it to your mechanic. You wanted to make sure before you bought this car that it was sound. And he looked it over and he came back and he said, yeah, it's a great car. Go for it. And you went and you bought that car. But within a week, the water pump blew. The, you, know, you threw a rod. The whole thing fell apart and it just died on you. And you went back to your mechanic and you said, wait a minute. You told me this was a good car. And he said to you, yeah, I know, but I didn't want to hurt your feelings. And you seemed like you really, really liked the car, so I didn't want to be a wet blanket on the whole thing, so I just told you, go ahead and get the car. You wouldn't think much of that mechanic. You wanted to know the truth before you made the purchase. See, truth is an expression of grace because truth tells us where our real need is. Truth is an expression of grace, and grace is the fulfillment of God's truth. John writes, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. What he's saying is that grace of God is an endless supply. You will never run out of your need for grace. And his grace to you will never run out. And, and, and he, again, he uses some very, very specific wording. Um, it's translated for us, grace in place of grace already given. But, but the idea that's conveyed in the word structure there in the original language puts, puts it like this. It's like there was, there was everywhere we looked, there was grace. Every conversation Jesus had, there was grace. Every healing that he performed, there was grace. Everywhere went. John said, I spent three years with this man, and every time we turned around, there was grace. Grace here, grace there, grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. That was Jesus' message. That's what he did. And that's what drove the religious people of his day crazy. Because he was constantly distributing grace. And they were truth people. And for them, Jesus' grace was like a game of whack-a-mole, you know? It just kept popping up. And they kept trying to punch it down. And it kept popping back up. That's what John's saying. Everywhere we looked, there was grace. Religious leaders one day brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. Caught in the very act. Now, there's the truth. And there's no denying it. Caught in the very act. And they bring her to Jesus. And they say, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Moses' law says stone her. 
what do you want us to do? And they did it to trick him, but he didn't fall for their trick. And what he did was he sat down and started to draw in the sand. And, and there's a lot of theologians and, and biblical scholars that have speculated on what it was that he wrote in the sand. I don't think it matters what he wrote in the sand because that wasn't the point. What he did was he said, all right, let's stone her. Um, you who is without sin, you throw the first stone. And then he just doodled in the sand. And what he was doing in that awkward silence was making everyone in that circle come to grips with the truth about themselves. And you could almost hear one by one the rocks drop to the ground and the crowd start to disperse. So finally, they're all gone and it's just Jesus and this woman. And he says to her, so where are your accusers? He said, there's no one, Lord. And he says these words, neither do I condemn you. Go now. Leave your life of sin. Not as a prerequisite. Notice that. Notice how he did it. Yes, he spoke to the truth about her situation. Yes, he spoke to the truth about her sin. But he says, first of all, grace. Neither do I condemn you. See, leave your life of sin. That's not the prerequisite. The grace came first. But then he addressed the truth. Now go and leave your life of sin. And what he was saying, not as a prerequisite, but as a result as an affirmation of grace. Now, you don't have to live that way anymore. You don't have to continue in that kind of behavior anymore. You have the chance to really change. It is grace and truth. And in his very last act, as he hung on a cross, he was hanging there, paying the price and the penalty and absorbing the punishment that your sin and my sin deserved. And while he is hanging there on the cross, he is hung between two, we were taught in Sunday school, two thieves. But these weren't thieves. These were insurrectionists. These were rebels. They didn't, they, they didn't crucify you for shoplifting, okay? These were incorrigibles. These were guys that, that had, they had no use for. And he's hanging between these two. And one ridicules him. But the other says, are you nuts? And he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, would you remember me when you enter your paradise? Jesus says to that man, today, today you'll be with me where I am. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, again, he says that to a man that probably has at most about an hour left to live. So there's no chance at real repentance here. There's no chance of saying, okay, Lord, I will follow you for the rest of my life. I got about 20 minutes. It's grace. To a man that is guilty, found guilty, hanging on a cross, with no chance of making up for it ever again in his life. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. You see, that's grace. And Jesus embodied both of those. Grace and truth. Truth 
and grace. And they are not polar opposites, although they feel that way for us because they just seem to be so diametrically opposed. Because, because truth says you're guilty. And grace says you're forgiven. And grace, truth says you're responsible. You're accountable. You, you got to do something about this. And, and grace says, I got you covered. Truth says you are flawed, you are broken, and you are unworthy. Grace says you are accepted, you're forgiven, you are loved. And Jesus embodied them both. And it has been my prayer for our church from the very, very beginning that we would be a grace-based church where people could come with whatever flaws, whatever sin, whatever struggles, and find a place of acceptance. But that we would not use grace to neglect the truth. And that we would be strong in the truth but always, always with grace. And we don't do that perfectly around here. And it's messy sometimes because there's no easy way of doing this. But my prayer for me, for you, for our church family is that we would be as best as we can, that embodiment of Jesus that says we are both full of grace and truth because everybody needs them both. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.